So tonight I'd like to um, kind of pick up and explore a bit more one of the many uh, really interesting themes that Winnie mentioned last night, particularly the one about uh, exploring this sense of self, or I like to think of it as demystifying the sense of self. So as we know, this, um, this teaching of anatta is quite uh, central to the way the Buddha taught and the understanding of it uh, really can be quite freeing in the moment. But our tendency so much is to think that it's something that we have to understand by thinking about it. Huh? And thinking about it, have you noticed what happens when you think about it? Does the sense of self seem to get a little bit stronger? <laughs> the more we think about it, the worse it gets. Because it's got nothing to do with thought. And then all the questions about, well, if there's no self, you know, who does this and who does that? But the thing is, there already isn't. Nothing changes except our perception. It's so, this, as Winnie was saying, think this idea we have to get rid of something and then we'll be free. No. It's like this, there, I mean, I think I'm probably not the only one. I do experience quite frequently a very palpable sense of self. Do you? <laughs> right? And so it's an experience. Like any other experience, we can explore it. So remembering that the Buddha taught, everything he taught was quite pragmatic to free our minds and hearts from confusion and suffering, not to add more conceptual philosophical overlay to our already crowded minds. And so just taking this into practice, I just want to, just a few ways of exploring, and you'll find also your own. There's, the Buddha said one time, he he compared consciousness to a magic show. And I want to say the sense of self is like that. A magic show being, he describes there's a magician at the crossroads, some crossroads, some dusty crossroads in Bihar back 2,600 years ago. And, you know, kids and people would come and be so fascinated by all the, whatever the magic is. But as soon as you see behind the curtain what the trick is, it loses all its interest, doesn't it? Like, oh, that's just what's going on. So the sense of self is just like that. Ramana Maharshi said a similar thing. He said, the ego, I'm substituting, idea of self is like a ghost caused by the play of shadows. When you look closely, the ghost vanishes. It was never really there. So also with a sense of separate self. As long as one does not look closely at it, it continues to give trouble. But when one looks for it, it is not found to really exist. So our ideas about, I have to get rid of this thing, is already positing a sense of existence based on just not really looking, not really noticing what's happening. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, how to investigate, how to look into it. One clue from the Majjhima Nikaya, Nikaya where um, somebody asked the Buddha, 
you basically put it succinctly. What is it that liberated ones know? And you've heard this. We all know it intellectually, so that's how we know there's different levels of knowledge because this won't be news, but we're not liberated yet. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. That's the phrase. What is it that liberated ones know? Nothing whatsoever should be clung to. So this is like kind of the first clue, as I said, it's not news, to help us into exploring when this sense of self arises, rather than thinking we have to somehow get rid of it or blame ourselves. It's more like seeing what's really going on. Nothing changes except perception shifts and how the perception shifts affects everything else and how we think, what we believe, how we act. So where I want to to start just in this little bit of deconstructing the magic show is tonight is with perception, which again we've already spoken about. It's great. I love it on the three-month retreat because it can just kind of refer to stuff and I don't have to like say so much. I mean, I'll say too much anyway, but I can refer without having to go on so much. It's good. So we've talked about what perception is, right? That quality, one of the five aggregates arising in every moment of consciousness, sense contact, of discernment, recognition, memory. It's very useful, isn't it? I mean, perception is really how we um, construct describe, define our world, isn't it? Without perception, it would be extremely confusing walking in here. I mean, the bell would ring, you know, what's that? What is that supposed to mean, you know? What am I doing here? What are we supposed to go in here? Here we all, you know, without perception, which is based on our memory and experience, things could be quite messy. And so when we have um, conventional agreement with our perceptions, then, you know, things more or less function. We get along. So perception is essential. So it's not like we want to get rid of perception, which we couldn't anyway. Appreciate it. But as we've said, I think Bonte talked about it, different ones of us have talked about it, that perception, of course, is a, it's a function of memory, really. And so perception each moment is informed really by all of our past experience, you know? Our personal life experience, our familial history, our cultural history, the society, the education, the people around us. Not that we have time to clock through all of that and see, but even without it being, um, without it being distorted by greed, hatred, confusion, perceptions already informed by all these experiences. And so what seems so we believe often, it's really like an attachment to the implicit correctness of our perceptions. Have you ever noticed that? Like, yeah, that's just how it is. So I'll give you a simple example. I'm going to try and give simple examples, not so complicated because it's the same process. I was at a friend's house. Um, actually, it was Sally, Guy's wife. And I said something about the, the blue throw, you know, the blue kind of cover that was lying on the back of the couch. She goes, what blue cover? I said, you know, that one right there. She goes, that's green. I said, no, it's blue. Okay. So I really tried to see green. I couldn't. She really tried to see blue. She couldn't. It's so interesting. Okay, we didn't come to blows about that. (laughs) 
we were both good, but, but to really see, even thinking that, and then you have the thought, secretly, it's blue. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere to go. You could call it a third person. There's this, you know, this sense that there's like an ultimate truth and blue is it, right? <laughs> Knowing Sally, I'm sure she felt the same about green. And Okay, that's a simple thing, right? But you really can get a sense from that if a perception goes a little bit farther. Again, is when Bhante spoke about papancha, the classical phrase from, from the Buddha is, you know, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we complicate with associations, with memories, with ideas. And then if that thinking and complication happens, just happens to be fed by some kind of craving or some kind of aversion or some kind of identification, whoa, you know, it really can get out of hand really quickly. So I'll give another example of that. And I had a lot of examples, but I am giving this particular example by request to tell this story. (laughs) You know you're getting old and people say, I really want you to tell that story again. You feel like an old, you know, an old performer, you know, and they go like an old singer and they go and they want to do their new songs. And people, oh, we don't want to hear your new songs. <laughs> Sing that one from the 60s. <laughs> but it is a good, it is a good example. <laughs> so how easy it is, and this is where clinging comes into our perception and, you know, we, we complicate it. So this friend uh, told me this, a good friend, um, who was many years ago sitting one of her first retreats in Switzerland. She's Swiss. And uh, at that time, it was a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, who was her teacher. And uh, there were no retreat centers in Switzerland at that time. It was, I don't know, probably at least 20 years ago. And so they would, uh, whoever was organizing the retreat would rent a place. And they had these big old houses out, out in, the, in the lower mountains all over Switzerland. <coughs> where um, kids go in the summer, like for summer camp, you know, so there's tons of room, and, but they're built, you know, really crummy, there's no insulation, old wood, so very noisy, very creaky, which I bet some of you can relate to, of creaking, creaking noise when you're trying to sit. So this particular way it was laid out, the, the, the room they're using for the meditation hall was on what we would call the second floor, and immediately below it, on what we would call the first floor, the ground floor, um, was the walking room. So like here, but without all the stuff in between. So in a, in a structured schedule, just like here. So she was um, in the sitting, it was a sitting, and struggling as one tends to do early days of a retreat, especially first retreat. And she's just starting to feel like she was getting concentrated on her breath. Finally, a moment of calm. It was a little quiet. And then she heard someone walking downstairs in the walking room because it was so noisy. Every step, creak, 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 creak. So we've really tried to soundproof it here, but it's impossible to soundproof against other human beings just living. So anyway, this person's walking, creak, creak. It's just, oh, they're ruining my concentration. But this is a sitting period. 
This is a sitting period. No one's supposed to be walking in a sitting period. And it just started, you know, feeding aversion and her, the thought about someone's walking and they shouldn't be and it's a sitting period and we're all supposed to follow the schedule and it kind of fed into her own particular, maybe a little bit colored by being Swiss, but also her own <laughs> particular kind of this is the right way to do things and you do what you're supposed to do, which she imposes on herself. And so she's getting really worked up. And, and seeing, at some point, there was nothing she could do. She wasn't going to get up, you know, and run downstairs and, and yell at them because she wasn't the manager. She might have had she been the manager, but she wasn't. And so at some point, she just was getting into such a, a snit. She just, okay, let me just come back and be with the breath. So she just brought the attention back and was able to just really land in the breath for a moment. And as she really felt the breath, in that moment, the mindfulness, and this is really the power of a moment of just pure, simple awareness, she wasn't holding on, the, that, that whole story, that whole papancha just wasn't arising in that moment. She was just able to feel the breath. And so then without the overlay on perception, she happened to notice that as she breathed out, she was leaning against the wall, and as she breathed out, her back went against the wall and made that creaking sound that she had thought was somebody walking downstairs. So at that point, I was like, wow. You never would have thought that by thinking about it. And as soon as she saw that, well, she didn't have to try. That whole construction, that whole concoction just completely disappeared, right? It's not like you're letting go of it. It's insane, so it goes away by itself (laughs) because accurate perception doesn't support it, right? You see what I mean? So this is, you know, the power of mindfulness to recognize something accurately and we don't know what we don't know, you know? We, We believe we can be holding on to our perceptions. We may not have even recognized in all the constructions that come from it and then obviously, getting into conflict with ourselves, with our belief system, with others. I don't even have to take it any farther to where it goes in this world. So, really why we're cultivating, why we're practicing this moment-to-moment simple freshness of attention. You know, it doesn't seem like it's so much a lot. You know, you come in and you say whatever's going on and go, oh yeah, great, you're aware of it. Right? That doesn't really make you feel good, does it? It's a horrible thing. Oh, good, you are really aware of it. You know? But that is really the thing. The sense of freshness, almost of wonder, in a moment of awareness, in a moment of presence, with whatever's there, allows just for that sense of, oh, maybe recognizing freshly without quite so much overlay on the perception. And... As I think, I imagine you probably know, I know for me, it's not so easy. Even with, you know, wholehearted intention, even with all I know about this, even when I'm aware, I just want to bring fresh perception. Already that's an overlay. I want fresh perception, you know. It's not so easy. Someone, just another example, someone who's a a real inspiration has been for me over the years, not no one I know personally, but just as much as I can tell from reading and listening, um, is the cellist, Yo-Yo Ma. You know, he's a quite, quite a world-famous cellist. He's based in Boston, actually. So trained in the um, 
classical, Western classical music tradition. But, but how he inspires me is different times I've, I've seen some videos of him or, or read or heard him on the radio or seen how he, he began this um, Silk Road Ensemble, which I'll talk about in a minute. He, he, he seems to, the times I've seen him, really embody this kind of openness and freshness and interest in a kind of a, a wonder when meeting like uh, musicians and instruments and other kind of music from all different kinds of cultures, you know. And like once I saw a video where he, he arrived somewhere in the middle of a small tribe in Africa and got out of the helicopter with his million-dollar Stradivarius cello and met this um, old tribal leader with his musician, his, he was a chief musician of that tribe, with his instrument, which was literally a round uh, metal oil can on a stick, you know, with like nails and a string coming out on the stick to make, you know, to make strings like the strings of a cello. And, and so Yo-Yo Ma, in this thing, he's like, he plays, that guy plays, he goes, wow, that's so amazing, let's trade instruments, let me try and play yours. He's going, oh, I can't play yours, you play it so well. And it's like this sense of this, this total interest, you know. So he's, um, for some years, he seems to be the guiding, the guiding force, but with this whole group of musicians constantly changing called the Silk Road Ensemble. Of musicians, you know, the Silk Road, the whole area from the Middle East and um, Central Asia, Mongolia, China, Persia, Turkey, India. And so he's meeting with these uh, musicians from all these areas with their different kinds of music and composing and instruments and different ideas of melody and timing and coming together and you know writing together, performing together, he with his cello, they with their instruments and, and, and really making this this blend and so he's it 's just really inspiring to me his openness, and so I love the idea right. And loving the idea, and wholeheartedly, I, I listen to the music. I want to like it. You know, I really want to like it. And my mind's like, <sighs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I can get it. That Mongolian singing's beautiful, but I, it, it just, you know, my perception <laughs> from my cultural history can't relax into it so I can intellectually appreciate then I listen more and listen more and I can start to get there and I just see how difficult it is you know with a good intention so I think wow you know he's so amazing this is uh, what he was writing in the foreword to their first album remember I think it was Winnie talking about uh, Jared Diamond from that when 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 people met back uh, in early days it was always you had to suss out you know who who was safe so he's in a way referring to that, said that when two people meet, within seconds an assessment is made on whether to trust one another. We all know how destructive it is when there's no trust. If there is some trust, an exchange might take place. As this trust develops over time, the exchange can lead to the best of all possibilities, creativity and learning. To me, this recording is an answer to that question, what happens when strangers meet? I love it. That seems to be his attitude. He just does so many different things. So I take it as a, an inspiration, but I also just take it as, as seeing how 
deeply and subtly ingrained all you know our past experience is that colors perception that informs perception and that's just normal that's just how it is so there's nothing wrong with this and we're not always going to notice it so i'm just describing this and trying to use more simple examples just to see this is how the process works and so then in terms of perception remember Again, I think it was Bhante who talked about the inversions or the distortions of perception where we, we see what is in constant change as being permanent. We don't recognize impermanence. We, we don't recognize the unsatisfactory nature. We, in fact, perceive things as being going to give us lasting happiness. And we don't recognize the... Um, insubstantial, no-lasting self-nature of things. We perceive experience as being me or mine, right? So it's on this level of perception that the, the whole kind of magic show of that feeling sense of self starts. Again, not to say that's a problem, just to begin to recognize, oh yeah, sense of self starts with perception. And when we don't, perception leads to how we think about things, chitta. How we think about things leads to our views, our opinions, you know. So the view of self, the view of identity, sukhaya ditti in Pali, but identity view, is just being created moment to moment. It's not some lasting thing, but arising in a moment out of perception, and when we don't, when, we're, when there's a moment of being um, attached, clinging to perception, and we may not recognize it, but back to that, that um, blanket, the blue-green blanket, my insistence that it's blue, in a way I couldn't, I couldn't see it other, but there's still a kind of a clinging to that perception, or maybe not to the perception so much as to that subtle, but I'm right. You know, so that's already into a view. You know, it goes just like that. I'm right. But it starts by kind of clinging to perception. And when, just like that fast, the, uh, the thoughts have kind of hardened or coagulated into a view, that there's a subtle, it can be a subtle clinging. It's just that little sense of this is how it is. I'm right. Our open awareness kind of it kind of snaps shut how it feels like to me. I stop really noticing fresh, you know? Like, say, listening to the music and I'm really trying and then all of a sudden I get tired and go, well, that's, that's really interesting, but I just can't appreciate it. I don't know how to appreciate it. And something just turns off. The freshness isn't there anymore. The, the open awareness isn't there anymore. And we, in terms of ourselves, what happens is we... When, when we have a view, well, I'll get to that later. It's kind of what I call selective perception. It snaps shut. So if it's a sense of me, I'm so angry, right? And we've attached to that without really looking at how that whole got, got created, but just, oh, I'm so angry, which is either I'm so bad, I'm so good, but I'm so angry. Then do you notice how what I call, instead of just the open perception, noticing whatever's arising, is what I call selective perception. The, the awareness, the consciousness starts picking up 
and noticing whatever particular sense, experience, or thought reaffirms the view that the mind's attaching to at that moment. I'm such an angry person. And then all the memories will come of all the angry times, you know, if you're, if you're bad. Or if I'm so angry because they're so, they're acting so inappropriately, then all the different ways they're doing that's inappropriate will come up. And all the other times, which are probably a lot more, that there's no anger, there's nothing special going on, or you're feeling loving, those don't seem to come into the mind at that time. Or if they do, they're dismissed, you know. And it's, a, it's actually a great, someone just shared today, it's like a great moment when you have the habit of getting lost and identified with any particular self-description like that. I'm so angry, I'm so bored, I, whatever. And it starts, and you're in it, and this is how I really am, this is my core. And suddenly, from practice, from all the times it hasn't been, it comes up, but that's not true. It's not true I'm always like this. Just five minutes ago, I wasn't like this. Like, wow. It starts to break apart. So, starting with perception, and then moving from that, I want to talk a little about when we just can begin to get interested in this felt sense of self. Not the thinking about it, not the idea, but the actual experience of it. This felt me or mine. Once I was sitting with Sayada Upandita, and I, you know, you sit, you note every moment. I was going, it was going along quite fine, and I just started noting whenever a sense of me would arise, I would just note it because it's just another arising experience, just like anything. A little uh. Sometimes it was an image. Sometimes it was a felt sense. Sometimes it was a thought. It's always something different, which is interesting to see. So I tried to. <laughs> It was a mistake. I tried to describe to him, okay, and so I note whenever sense of me arises. And they just, you know, he and the translator just cracked up. Ha, ha, ha. She's noting Atta. She's noting Atta. Sense of self. Ha, ha, ha. There's no sense of self. Ha, ha. It was what friends of mine, what friends of mine would call we're having a cross-cultural experience, you know, where we both just miss each other. But anyway... (laughs) It was all right. So the way I want to the way I want to talk about just recognizing this sense of self, I'm I'm taking this way of speaking about it from Ajahn Buddhadasa, the great Thai uh, meditation master, scholar, uh, forest monk, who um, died in the '90s. Uh, I spent some time in his um, his his forest monastery in the 80s when I was uh, in, in Thailand for a year as a nun. And uh, he was a scholar and a little bit of, within the Thai Theravada, a little bit of a radical, you know, free thinker. Um, and, and this is a book that was translated into English as uh, Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree, where he's talking about a lot about just recognizing and exploring this sense of self. Um, And so this is what he said. The sense of self is merely a condition that arises when there is grasping and clinging in the mind. And I think that's such a great description. That's all it is. It's just a condition that arises when there's grasping and clinging in the mind. So what? 
It's no big deal. It comes, it goes when there's grasping and clinging. A friend of ours said, he put it, I want, I need, therefore I am. (laughs) So sangatishin means it's a construction, a sankara, a coming together due to conditions. And like any other condition, any other object, it can be recognized in awareness Hearing, seeing, sense of self. It does, and we don't have to give it this big, like, deal. Oh, my God, the sense of self is here. When am I ever going to get rid of it? Oh, it's here so much. I'm never going to get enlightened, you know? And it just turns into this big thing. And that actually takes the attention away from just looking at, what am I calling sense of self? What's the experience right now? Uh. So this is almost prior to the whole construction, the whole story, the whole I'm so this and that. It's just the original clinging. So so it's with awareness we can start to notice it. And it can be, really, it can be fun to just explore the arising and passing, the birth and death of sense of self. So I think, as Winnie again said, you know, the sense of self, since it arises from, in a moment of clinging, your sense of self, in arising in contact with any sense contact, including the mind. It can be with anything. But I'm going to pick some simple examples where you can just really see. Again, an example from my own, but it happens, arises, and passes hundreds of times in a day. And when, you know, we kind of get into a reactivity to it, we, assuming it's here so much or it's always here, it's just so familiar, and uh, not really noticing that every time it's different, too. So, very simple kind. Well, someone was telling me, another retreat, they, there's a bowl of candy out. It wasn't this retreat, out in the back. And they're just walking very mindfully through the dining room, and suddenly there was seeing, bowl of candy. And they saw very much the sense of me wanting candy arose, just like that, just wanting and sense of me and then they kept on walking. The image of the candy faded. Sense of me died. Birth and death. Just like that. Notice it over and over. So another little story similar. A little, get a little more expanded. And I was on retreat here once some years ago. Uh, a while ago. Because we used to have not all this homogeneity of green mugs, every mug the same. We, we used to have all different mugs that all people had brought and left here, you know. It was like kind of fun. Anyway, so I was, I was on retreat, and I would, but I, I wasn't, I would walk in, take a mug, whatever, and they're all different, you know, different sizes, different everything, nothing. But partway into the retreat, like, you know, a couple months in, I took a mug, I'm drinking my tea in the morning, and suddenly the thought, this is really the perfect mug. It's like the right color, and it just fits my hand, and it feels good to drink out of. And I really became aware of me and my mug really arose in that moment. You could see the clinging, but instead of going, oh, no, I shouldn't cling, you could just see me, you know. Before that, it had just been stuff was just happening. And I said, should I keep it? She said, no, just put it down. I put it down. That birth ended. So that's like birth and death of sense of self. And just starting there, that's really a very simple example of the dependent origination, 
the middle part that we can watch, which is a profound teaching. I can't begin to <laughs> teach it just now, but it's the, the most of you are familiar, I'm no, I know. But the 12 links the Buddha describes of how um, suffering, beginning with ignorance, arises and leads to, ends in death in a moment. And so Buddha Dasa, in, in one of the ways it's described in the suttas, it's over two, three lifetimes. But another way it can be seen, and this is how Ajahn Buddha Dasa talks about it, so I'm mentioning it now, is especially the middle part, we can really, at times, see it happening in our experience. And so it is, um, starting with ignorance, I'm going to the middle part, so there's consciousness and contact, right? There's a sense organ, object, consciousness and contact. So in the case of that mug, there was touching, right? And contact leads to feeling tone, right? This isn't new information. So touching, pleasant. Feeling tone without real awareness gives rise to tanha, to craving, either wanting or wanting to get rid of. So you feel that craving. Now the way Ajahn Buddha Dasa describes, okay, craving leads, he describes craving leads to grasping. That's just the stronger. You know, someone said craving, you're leaning into grasping, you grab a hold of. So Ajahn Buddha Dasa describes when we get to the grasping, he calls it as feeling I and mine. Where we're leaning into and then I'd grasp that mug. The birth, the carol, I and mine. Leads to bhava becoming which then Buddha Dasa describes as feeling, having and being, having and being, having my mug, being I, having my mug. This is like this, but you see each one's just a little bit stronger. And from bhava, the next that comes is birth. And then from birth, old age, sickness, disease, and then death. So you see how really quickly in that moment, it went from the sense contact to the pleasant to the leaning into, the grasping, to the birth of Carol and her mug. Put it down, walked away, the whole thing died. Gone. Birth and death. You know, in a moment. Really gone. Ajahn Chah, now, but this happens quickly. We're not always going to see this. Don't make yourself crazy. But sometimes we can. But sometimes, Ajahn Chah has a lovely way of describing it. That the, all twelve links of the dependent origination says so it goes so fast. It's like you're in a tree and you fall out of a tree, and you pass twelve branches on the way down, and just like whop whop, you hit the ground and land in suffering. And you passed all twelve branches, but you didn't really have time to stop and examine each one. It's like whop, here you are, <laughs> in the middle of not getting what you want and suffering. What you want's going away and suffering, but. With our mindfulness, the mindfulness can pop in at any time and we can really see this. And if we're not, you know, hating it or fearing it, it's really fascinating to watch. So back to the same silly example of the mug. So the next day I came in and I did kind of look for that mug. So already there's a little complication. It had just been free and easy and natural. I walked, I picked, I took, there was just space. Now just, uh and the mug was there. Oh, okay, so I took it. <laughs> Drinking out of it, saying, oh, this is right, this is perfect, the whole nine yards again. And then this time I thought, I think I will actually save this mug. <laughs> I'll take it to my room. I can take it to my room. Now, And this retreat, I was moving really slowly. 
So taking it to me, because that was the only way I could really be sure no one else took it, right? My room was way at the end of what used to be the Catskills. So I'm thinking, okay, I'll take it to my room. And then I thought, but you take it to your room. By the time you creep down there and get the mug and creep back in here to breakfast, breakfast is over, you know. <laughs> this isn't going to work. And so my mind's going, so it's all getting so complicated, you know. And so I really was in the suffering at that. I mean, this isn't huge suffering, but how many times a day does the mind do this? And at some point, oh, you know what? Put it down. <laughs> Put it down. And the whole thing just dropped away in that moment. I really put it down. But so this is a great chance to explore what does that sense of self feel like? And it's really the contraction of grasping itself, you could say. What had just been free and easy is it became restricted, contracted, complicated. I'm planning, I'm scheming, my attention's narrowed, there's tension, how do you know, get past all these people? It, everything gets complicated and unpleasant because of, you know, it's not the mug, that sense of I contracting around that. Watching the whole thing with mindfulness, honestly, no problem. Even watching all the complications of my mind when the mindfulness comes in, the complication, oh, look at that object. Look how grasping creates sense of self. Look how it creates complexity. Isn't that interesting? Put it down the mug. Watch it drop away. Walk out. And notice the next time it arises. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really fun to see. It arises, it fades and dies. Over and over. Hundreds of times a day. So... Rather than judging it or thinking if we do it right, it's got to stop, we learn to start trusting more and more the power of the mindfulness of the awareness to simply see, oh, this is just how the mind works in this situation. This is how what we call identification is really clinging to. It's a perception or a thought or any of the sense experiences, any of the five aggregates Guy mentioned, consciousness, perception, any sankara, which is any emotional formation, vedna, often we're clinging to pleasant or uh, tanha pushing away, you know, clinging to getting rid of the unpleasant feeling, not recognizing that and lost in a story. But with each particular one, when the magic trick is seen through, it's like, oh, that's what's going on. This mug isn't going to make me happy for the rest of my life. It's just a magic trick. Put it down, it goes. Yeah. And on the other side of that, not the other side, but the alternative, just as, and this is back to Ajahn Buddha Dasa, how he talks about it. Just as it can get just interesting to recognize birth and death, sense of self, how does it feel? You know, what am I calling sense of self in this moment? Hundreds of times in a day. So just as it's born, so it dies. He says it's really important. We need to recognize all the moments that are, now this is using Buddha Dasa's uh, language, what we call empty of sense of self, which is also true. Maybe even more moments of a day. 
So he's, in his way of talking, he's um, describing shunyata, which is usually translated as emptiness. He's describing that as meaning empty of sense of self. Okay, so that's how he's describing emptiness. And he says, in moments where there is no particular sense of me or mine arising, are not a state we have to create, but these are just moments of simple what you would want to call the mind, just being being aware, that is just truly normal and natural. It's a natural quality of our mind of just being aware when the attention isn't distracted in all this construction and concocting and creating all this stuff around a particular clinging. It's not like some amazing state we have to have a big explosive blowout experience to finally recognize and have a moment of anatta, you know? No. More start, as much as we get interested in noticing birth and death of self, notice death of self and just these moments where nothing much else is happening. It's just these moments he's calling shunyata, empty of sense of self. And we're not distracted. There's a, a word, it's used some in the suttas, not a lot. Again, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was picking it up. Uh, atamayata, which kind of translated as a state of not being made of that. Okay, I know it's a little complicated, but you could more put it as a state, not even a state, but the mind that is not constructing, not fabricating not concocting. Or as Ajahn Amaro describes it, it refers primarily to the quality of experience prior to all the subject, object, all the stories we tell. Just that moment of isness. There are so, so many moments like that in every day, but we don't often notice them because our habit is more inclining into the concoctions, right? Conclining, inclining into whatever stories coming from the uh, attachment to the perception or the feeling or that little sense of self. The sense of self in itself is just another fabrication, another thing. It doesn't have to be a big story. But we tend to get more entranced by the stories by the concoctions, and not quite noticing just the simplicity of the silence of the non-concocting mind. So again, as Buddhadasa is saying, do we notice? He says it's important to generate a contentment with, he calls it voidness, with this emptiness. You notice we talk about noticing when it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, Noticing when nothing's really happening, so what you're aware, right? When there's no big whoop at all, pleasant or unpleasant. How often when there's nothing special, we kind of dull out, space out, find yourself like, okay, nothing, waiting for the next me, the next birth of me to arise, you know? Are we uncomfortable? In just that simple, even to say calm is too much, just 
just the in-between, before nothing special is happening. Notice, if some and a thought ends, a mood ends, a sensation ends, and it's just space. Do you feel you got to jump back to your breath? Jump back to something. Something's got to be going on. Fill up the space. Have something to note. Know what's happening. Can't just be space. It's like ooh, a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. So he's saying start to notice the neutral when so-called nothing is happening. Generate a contentment with that or inclining the awareness. I just notice the space between thoughts or between actions. Like you're eating, you jump up, probably not, you're all slowing down, but the second you finish your last bite, okay, boom, jump up. Just take a minute. Just be in the space a minute. There's nowhere to rush to. The space between breaths, the space between experience. Just beginning to uh, find an ease with that. And as soon as you go, this is the moment that there's no me. I'm looking for the moment of, (laughs) forget that. You'll do that. That's another sense of self-arising. And then that's just the next arising experience. Buddha Dasa again. Normally we don't notice this this emptiness, this voidness of, of sense of self because we're so involved with experience, so involved with concocting conceptual thoughts. I love that word, concocting. I don't know. If English isn't your first language, it might be hard to explain. It's kind of like putting things together, but it has a, I just, it has a kind of a, a little bit of an, I don't know, kind of throwing things together in some kind of weird way, concocting. So it doesn't give us a chance to recognize just the empty nature of awareness, the natural nature of awareness. I want to read a description from... The Buddha. I like this because here the Buddha is describing how his how it is in his mind, how his mind perceives things to the monks. So this is a little dense, but uh, I hope you can stay with it. I, I love it. It's from uh, Anguttara Nikaya. He's saying, "Thus, bhikkhus, the Tathagata, which means himself, does not conceive of a visible thing." as apart from sight, right? Does not cons- this, is the, this is the corollary to the Bahia Sutta, which you got a double dose of last week. In the scene, there is only the scene. So he's describing how that is in his mind. Does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight. He does not conceive of something unseen. He does not conceive of a thing to be seen. He does not conceive about a seer. Do you get a sense of that? He's just, the seeing is just the seeing. He's not thinking about what else is there to see. He's not thinking about what isn't being seen. He's not thinking about a seer seeing that. Seeing is just what's happening. And similarly for hearing, similarly for things sensed, similarly for a cognizable thing, does not conceive of a cognizable thing, which is any mood, any emotion, any thought, as apart from cognition. So what's happening? Thinking is happening. He doesn't conceive of a thinker who's thinking a thought, or of something that's worth cognizing, or is something that is uncognized. What is it I don't know? What could I know? No, 
just cognizing is happening. Can you imagine that? Just the peace of it. Just the peace of it. I mean, it's so simple we can't stand it. But just the peace of it. It's just this. And even the sense of self is simply something cognized in that moment. Oh, sense of self. And the peace of it. Another way, I'm just going to read a few things describing it in different ways. This was, I got this out of The Island, that book by Ajahn Pasano and Amaro. But this is from um, a disciple of Ajahn Man, another Thai forest master, Longpo Dun. And he's reformulating the Four Noble Truths. Okay, that might be a little grandiose, but it's, it's a, I love the way he's saying it in terms of what we're talking about here. The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. You know what that means? It goes out like when Ajahn Chah says, you know, we go out and disturb the sound. The mind goes out and disturb the sound. Hearing is just hearing. So that's the mind that goes out and complicates is the cause of suffering. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering, the first noble truth. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering, the Eightfold Noble Path. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering, the Third Noble Truth. I just like that as a very pragmatic way I find just very useful to tune in to the Four Noble Truths. So... What we're doing, what we're practicing here is the mind learning to see the mind clearly without bias, without judgment. Just how is the mind working? Nothing to be afraid of in it. Nothing to be afraid of about recognizing the sense of self. Because awareness is stronger. Awareness can be with anything. Just keep on bringing in the awareness and we see more clearly how the mind is working. And as we more recognize how the mind is working, there's less and less suffering about it. So, inclining the mind, just to some ease, some comfort, just some recognition with these, I call like little nothing special moments. Instead of looking for the big light show, just the nothing special moments. Or if you noticed jumping out, and often, you know, anything, any suffering sense of self and concoction is better than, than just, you know, peace. <laughs> just nothing. <laughs> because it's so familiar, the sense of me. But again, back to Buddha Dasa, Ajahn Buddha Dasa. I think Guy mentioned those two Pali phrases, ahankara and mamankara. I-ing and my-ing. Notice their verbs. I-ing and my-ing. Just constructions that the mind creates in a moment and that fall away when the conditions change. And they're changing all the time. So we're just here to explore that. So I just want to read a couple of other ways of describing it just to end. Just describing the simplicity. Okay. This is from Ajahn Jumnian, who's... We're in Thailand tonight. He's another Thai forest master. 
At some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content, and all is recognized as simply mind and matter, empty processes arising and passing away of its own. Perfect balance of mind with no reactions, and in this time there is no longer any doing. So not to think about that as a goal to be reached and stay there, okay? But just a description of moments and the way the Buddha was talking when it's just this and the mind doesn't go out and concoct a whole story about it. It's just this. Anything, whatever arises, is recognized and simply left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is recognized as simply mind and matter arising and passing away. So from Nyosho Kempo, who was a wonderful Tibetan Dzogchen master, so I said, this kind of recognition, this simplicity of awareness, you know, says it's not something that's missing to be sought for and obtained, but it's at the very heart, you know, of our essential nature. He calls it unfabricated, ordinary awareness. So don't go looking for something so special, you know, in these moments. Just unfabricated, ordinary awareness, unadulterated by effort and modification. Naked, fresh, vivid, and totally natural. What could be simpler than this? That's the trouble, like I said before. It's so simple, we can't stand it. We want to go out and make a story. What could be simpler than this? So get out of the construction business. So just generating, in just little moments, just recognizing the space, the silence, whatever way it comes for you, the calm, the nothing special, the birth of self, the death of self, the creation, the complexification, the death of that, And all of it is just mind and matter arising and passing. No need for interference. And then this is from Dogen, just to end. Dogen, the great Zen master. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. To be enlightened by all things is to dissolve the barriers that seem to exist between oneself and others. So let's just sit quietly for a minute. What could be simpler than this? Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.